1 Samuel chapter 12. Last week we looked at chapter 11. And if you remember, it was Saul's, this was, uh, chapter 11 was really Saul who was Israel's first king. This was really his best and last great moment of his ministry, of his time being king. You'll recall that Nahash the Ammonite, who the Ammonites were to the east of the Jordan River, and they came against a small town uh, right on the west side, or or the east side of the Jordan River called Jabesh-Gilead, which belongs to the tribe of Gad. And the Ammonites came against them and threatened to... um, uh, take out their eyes and stuff, you know, basically to destroy them. And they gave them, uh, the Ammonites gave them uh, ample time to figure out an army to come and uh, fight with them. Uh, they, they believed that there was nothing that Israel could do uh, because they were so disjointed at that time. So the Ammonites kind of had it in their mind that this was going to be an easy battle for them. But the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who you you remember, we looked at the history of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin and the people of Jabesh-Gilead and what really bound them together. Because the the men of Jabesh-Gilead came to Saul and, and Benjamin into the town where he lived, and they told him the story. And so Saul, he musters an army. He does something a little unconventional in trying to encourage the people of Israel to gather together to come and wage war against the Ammonites, who are uh, a, an enemy of Israel. And he does. He gets a, a great army. They come against Jabesh-Gilead. It's a great victory for Israel. And it was Saul's very first victory as king. And so what happened after that is, is that uh, everyone is really excited. You know, they had asked for a king. God gave them this king that they wanted. And this king went out to battle, and he fought his first battle, and it was a great victory. And everyone is really excited. You know that feeling. When, something, when, when you're in, involved in something for the very first time, and, and, and everything just goes, it's, you know, gangbusters. Everything is going well. And that's exactly what happened. And the people were kind of on a high with their new king. And it says to us, you know, they said, long live the king. And then Samuel, um, um, excuse me, Samuel said to the people, come and let's go up to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made the king, Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And they made sacrifices of peace offerings and before the Lord. And Saul and all the men rejoiced greatly. They rejoiced greatly. And I think it's interesting, out of all the kings of Israel, Saul, this very first king of Israel, he seems to have like three different events for his inauguration, if you will. You remember that Samuel uh, met Saul in his own hometown of Ramah, and Samuel anointed Saul with oil privately. It was very private between him and Saul. And then later on, we find in uh, the 10th chapter of this book that finally he's proclaimed king publicly, uh, and, they, and, they, and they did it through uh, by lot uh, just, to make sh- just to make sure to, and to prove to the people that God was in this process. They did that at Mizpah. But this was a very pr- uh, public uh, pronouncement of Saul being king. And then finally we see after this first victory, they decide to go and go to Gilgal and have another coronation ceremony because they're so excited about their new king, which you can't blame them. And so Saul is now coronated, uh, in a sense, a third time publicly. So let's read 
Uh, for the sake of context, let's read chapter 12, and then we'll get into it. Notice, it says, Now Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice and all that you said to me, and have made a king over you. And now here is your king walking before you. And I'm an old and gray-headed, and look, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. Here I am. Witness before me the Lord, uh, excuse me, witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. And then he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, He is witness. So then Saul, or excuse me, then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron, and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still, that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did to you and your fathers. When Jacob had gone into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hands of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Then they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtoreths, but now deliver us from the hand of our enemies, and we will serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel. Bedan, Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Now therefore... Stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking a king for yourselves. And so Samuel called to the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. So then Samuel said to the people, Do not fear, you have done all this wickedness. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. For this for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good way and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you, 
But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Both you and your king. You know, transition, I, I, if I could label this uh, passage tonight, it would be Saul's coronation and Samuel's swan song. Samuel's swan song. And transitions, as we see tonight, are very rarely smooth and easy. And we're going to see that there are times in the scripture where we see this kind of thing happening. The, the passing of the baton, if you will. We saw it with Moses to Joshua. We saw it with Elijah to Elisha. And certainly tonight we're seeing it from Samuel going to Saul. And these transitions or the succession of ministry is important. They're very important things. They often come to a halt when there is no vision or direction, when, when there isn't a smooth succession like we see in the scripture sometimes. Some churches plan on ministry succession and others do not. The ones who don't, they usually end up in crises and the ministry and the people in the church, they suffer. I've seen and heard this many times where a pastor you know, for many years he teaches, he finally gets to be 85 years old, and then he has a stroke, and he goes home to be with the Lord, and now he's got a board of elders that are fighting over who should take over the church. And anyone in leadership, especially in church leadership, and this happens in the world even, whenever there is somebody at the top of the, you know, who's, who's kind of leading the whole thing, there's always people underneath ready to go that if something should happen, and that only makes sense. In fact, you may be doing several jobs at your workplace because if somebody calls in sick or gets fired, you're the next one in line to take up that slack. And so the same thing happens in ministry too. And it's important that we're always uh, raising up the, the people around us. It's always good for those in leadership to be looking out and, and encouraging others to get involved because the church is not about the leaders in the church. It's about Jesus. And to make that go smooth, we have to think. And we have to keep things going. And we have to make sure that we're not getting stuck on ourselves, but we got to reach out and we got to include others and identify others whom the Lord seems to have his hand on and encourage them. And that's what happened to me. That's why the transition from Pastor Jeff to myself went so well. But that isn't usually the case. But we need to be thinking about that. And even though Saul was king... Samuel, we're going to see, is, was really more of the spiritual leader where Saul was really the military commander. And so Samuel was sort of like a, a father to Saul, in a sense. And even though we're going to see a transition tonight between Samuel, the, Israel's last judge, to Saul, Israel's first king. It doesn't, mean that Saul, or it doesn't mean that Samuel is going to drop off the face of the earth. He's slowly going to, at this point going forward, he's going to slowly fade, fade away from the scene, but he's going to be interjected at different times in Saul's life to correct him. He's going to be interjected in the life of David's life to anoint him king. And then in chapter 25, Samuel passes from the scene. He passes on. And so really what this is, is passing the baton until Samuel passes on, physically, physically. And in the midst of it, we're going to see Saul again coronated once again after this great victory that they had against 
the Ammonites. So let's go back to verse 1. So Samuel said to the, all of Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice and all that you've said to me. You know, that you remember the people were crying out. They wanted a king over them. And they kept crying and crying. And, and be careful what you ask for because you just might get it, right? And that's true. And that's what the people of Israel did. They saw all the nations around them. They wanted to be just like them. And so they kept crying, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king. And God is going, like, uh, not a good idea. Wasn't I sufficient for you? Wasn't I able to bring you through the desert? Didn't I fight your battles for you? Why is there any need for a king, begs the question. But the peer pressure, isn't that true? It's not only about people individually succumbing to peer pressure. Nations, kings of other nations, look at other kings of other nations and they say, wow. I want to be like that. I want to do that. I like the way they do things. I want to mimic that. And that's exactly what we see. And so, finally, the Lord, if you remember, in chapter 8 of this book, in verse 4, it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together. Remember, we looked at this. They came to Samuel at Ramah, his hometown. They said to him, Look, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make a king to judge us like all the nations. Like all the nations. Like all the nations. Does that sound like a little bit of peer pressure? We want to be like all the nations. But the thing, it says, displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Samuel, listen to them. Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should rule, reign over them. And again, this is a sin of the people. God wasn't good enough. Has God never been good enough? He's always good enough. It's our, the problem is with us. It's never a problem with him. The problem is always with us. God is able to do anything. If he required a king, he would have just said, you know what, Samuel, I need you to go do this without ever being provoked or people crying about it. God would have just said, this is what I need you to do. And it would have been the right thing to do. But God knew very well he could conquer their battles. Didn't he do it with the, with the uh, Amalekites and the, uh, uh, the Midianites with Gideon? Wasn't he able to conquer several, a couple hundred thousand with just 300 men at night with pitchers and lamps and trumpets? Can God do those things again and again and even be very creative? I think he can. He's a very creative God. And so we see in Samuel chapter 8 that not only in that verse 7, but also in verse 9 and verse 22 of that same chapter, he says the same thing. Samuel, listen to their voice. Listen to their voice. And again, be careful what you ask for because you might just get it. And the day that man no longer wants God is the beginning of the end for that man or for that nation. When we forget God, when we no longer want God, that is the day we as a person, we as a nation, begin to die slowly. The tourniquet gets put around our artery, and little by little, the life starts going out of us until it's finally vanquished. And the church in America and the nation, folks, we need to return to the Lord. We need to return to Christ. We have rejected him from early on. From the 60s on, it's just been even worse and worse and worse. We have rejected God. And the church, not all of us, but the church in wholesale, 
Most of the church has just been playing games and kind of going about their own business. And it's really a wake-up call for us to wake up. Lord, what do you want to do with me? That's a good question to ask. And I need to be serious about sin. Are you serious about sin in your life? Is it something that you're willing to just kind of continue doing what you do and then just ask God to forgive you? He'll forgive you. He's a God of grace if you confess. That's what the Bible says. But then we don't change, and there's something wrong when we can continue living lives of sin and rebellion and then just always reaching in our pocket to that rabbit's foot and saying, Lord, forgive me. And he does. He's so good about that. But folks, do you understand there's a problem when my life doesn't continually reflect Christ? and what he's done in my life. Don't let your life be like that. In Psalm 33, verse 12, it says, Blessed is the nation whose, whose God is the Lord, is Jehovah, specifically, the people he has chosen for his own inheritance. In Proverbs 14, righteousness exalts a nation. It exalts a nation. When a nation is no longer exalted, it's because righteousness is no longer happening. And it starts with us first. Do you know that? It starts with the church of God. We can't expect the people outside these four walls to be like that. We have to be like that. We have to take our our relationship with Christ serious. We have to take it serious. Are you taking your walk with Christ serious? Or have you gotten into a kind of a haze and kind of a fog and just kind of going through the motions? We can no longer go through the motions, folks. we got to wake up. Wake up, church in America. I need to wake up. The church needs to wake up so that we can be what God wants us to be. He wants us to be a light to those outside of these four walls. Even if we say nothing, our very lives will will scream something that is so different from what people are experiencing out in the world. There's a peace about you if you're walking with Christ that is undeniable. The smile on your face when you're going through troubles, knowing that God is able, knowing that God can heal. Back in our text, verse 2, it says that, and now Samuel says, here is your king walking before you, and I'm old and gray-headed, and look, my sons are with you. They've walked before you from my childhood. And here is, in a sense, this passing of the baton. And you remember that Samuel's sons, uh, Joel and Abijah, they were not good men. I don't know what happened, and maybe it wasn't Samuel's fault, because we can't be held responsible to too much with another person, another child of ours. You teach them in the way they should go, but they have to make the decision to follow. They can't ride into heaven on the coattails of their parents. We can't control them. They've got to come to that relationship with Christ one-on-one. We can't make them do it. They've got to do it on their own volition. But Samuel's sons, Joel and Abijah, they were not good men. They, They perverted justice, it tells us. They took bribes, just like Eli's sons, whom Samuel grew up with. Remember when he was in Shiloh at the tabernacle, the Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were not only uh, taking bribes and doing injustice, they were also sleeping with the women before the gate. And Samuel knew that his sons weren't called to continue in the ministry, and the people knew it too, and how heartbreaking it was. And notice what he said, I've walked before you from my childhood. What a privilege for Samuel to serve the Lord all of his life, from a child up until he's a gray-haired old man. Think of that. I didn't come to serve the Lord until I was 26, 20, yeah, 26, 25, 26 years old. That was when I got saved and everything changed. 
Then I started serving the Lord and realized what a joy it was. Well, think of being a young man, a very young man, you know, seven, eight, nine years old, and now in the temple as he was. And there's nothing greater. And Samuel was a Levite. He, that was what he was supposed to do. And there's nothing greater than serving Jesus Christ. There's no greater vocation. Are you serving the Lord? Are you serving the Lord regardless of where you're working nine to five every day? Did you know that you can serve the Lord while you're working nine to five? You may not be able to outrightly start preaching to somebody, but there's breaks. You've got a break. You've got a lunch break. You can send in, uh, an email after hours to a, co- a co-worker who's struggling after hours. You've got to be careful about that. You do what you've got to do for your employer, but there's ways that you can minister to people. I remember when 9-11 happened, and I was working at Xerox at the time, and I remember that Tuesday morning because after everything fell down in the two towers, everybody was freaking out. I remember that. And I went back into my cubicle, and I just sat there, and everybody in my group knew I was a Christian, And I sat there with my head on my desk just weeping. And I lift my head up and I found a line of people outside my cubicle. They knew I was a Christian. They said, what does the Bible have to say about this? What is this? What's going on? And it was a great opportunity, again, to minister. Notice I didn't initiate it. They initiated it. But see... Begin to think like that, that your job no longer has to be a drag, but your job can be a mission field. You have to be careful, but it can be a mission field. And what a blessing for Israel to have Samuel for all that time. But as so often the case, when a man of good character who has kept, the, and kept them accountable to God and has lived the example before them, once he has passed from the scene, the people go about their business. They stop following the father of their faith in a sense. Lowercase f, understand? There's an old phrase that when the cat is away, the mice will play. And for some reason, when we don't have accountability, that's usually the most dangerous time for us. And that's exactly what happened to the children of Israel. Do you recall what happened? And and this is a a real indictment on the children of Israel. Um, At this verse here in... um, in, uh, what, what verse are we in? Chapter, or verse 2, write this scripture reference. Judges chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. I would encourage you to read this verse often and let it challenge you about your kids and your grandkids and the kind of life that you live and what kind of heritage you leave behind. Notice what it says in Judges chapter 2, verse 7. And this is after, this is the death of Joshua after he led them out um, or into the promised land. And finally he, you know, they divide the land, they get it all settled, and finally he dies. But it says in verse 7, so the people served the Lord. Listen to this very carefully because this is where we're at as a country. This is where we have been actually, and that's why we're in such a mess that we are in today. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua because there's their accountability. There's the man before him. First it was Moses. Moses. Now it's Joshua, and Joshua's getting old, and he starts to fail, and then finally he dies. But before he does, he tells them. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old, and they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath-Herez, 
in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaash. And when all that gen- and here it is, circle this verse, verse 10. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation. Here is the tragedy, and it's happening in our country. has been happening for years. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did what? They did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They served all those false gods, those demonic beings that promised them so many good things, and yet they were empty and did nothing for them, but brought them into greater bondage. And see, that's why it's important as as dads, as moms, we have to continue to share with our kids, tell them the great things that God has done, that they know the works that God did in your life so that they can see him. Tell them to your grandkids, even if you only spend 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, a half hour if they're willing, spend that time with them in the word as often as you can, as often as you can, telling them the things that God did for you because then there's life in it. It's not just about, you know, David and Goliath in the Bible. It's about this is what God did for your mother and I when we were going through our marriage, you know, when we first got engaged and we didn't have any money and God provided a job and he did this and a miracle happened and, you know, God dropped a million dollars out of the sky and that's why I have this new jet ski. I mean, whatever it is, tell how God, what he has done for you. Tell them, tell them the works of God in your life. Get them into the word. Tell them the history. I love to tell our daughter those kinds of things. I love telling her how God gave us our first house and how that all came about. It was a miracle. How God brought my wife and together. That was a miracle. Believe me, I tried and I I was failing miserably. And God had to intervene and he did. (laughs) Go figure. I prayed for nine months and God did something. Without me, Many other things he's done. But see, accountability that now that Samuel is giving to the people of Israel, it is good. He's telling them what has happened. We've already read it. We've read through the chapter. He's given them a history lesson about what God did. And he's making them accountable by rehearsing it for them and giving them conditional promises. If you do this, God will do this. If you don't do this, then God's not going to do that. Conditional promises, he gives them to them. And accountability is good. And for those young people, if you're a young person watching or watching this or hearing it on the radio later on down the road, I want to encourage you not to shrug that off or don't despise the accountability of your parents or those who are older than you. It's for your own good. I see that now. When I was 13 and 14 and even till my early mid, you know, 20s, I didn't quite understand. But something about age, something about maturity gets a hold of you and you realize, man, my parents really knew what they were talking about. And they were trying to tell me all that time not to do this, not to do that. Be careful, son. Watch out for this. Watch out for that. I'm like, yeah, whatever. I can do it better. And, and, and I didn't. I made a mess. Of, of things. And in fact, I, I sinned better than they did, and I got in more trouble. But as you know, with freedom comes responsibility. And so if you're responsible, guess what? You earn more freedom. That's what accountability is. Learn from those who are older than you, especially those who are in the Lord. There's a, a, an old Spanish philosopher who said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. 
So it's important that we rehearse these things, that our kids, our grandkids can learn from what we have done. But back in our text, let's look at verse 3. Notice what Samuel says. He says, here I am. This is his swan song. Here I am, witness before me, witness against me, excuse me, before the Lord and before his anointed. He's speaking of now the new king, Saul. Who's, uh, and he says, and here's his uh, question to everyone, the whole nation. Whose ox have I taken or whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? If I have, I will restore it to you. And notice what he said at the very first of that part of that verse. Here I am. Underline that verse. And I want you to put a little scripture reference next to it. Underline here I am and then put in 1 Samuel 3, verses 1 through 5. Just put in 3, or colon 1 through 5. You'll see why, because I'm going to share it with you right now. Here at the end, near the end of, his, of this transition, uh, of his ministry really ending and Saul's really beginning, at the very beginning of his ministry in 1 Samuel chapter 3, remember it says that the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no widespread revelation. And it came to pass at that time, while Eli was lying down in his place, and remember, this is when Samuel was just a little boy, just a little guy, probably under 10 years old still. Eli was lying down in his place, and when his eyes had begun, uh, begun to grow dim so that he could not see, and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord where the ark of God was, and while Samuel was lying down, that the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here I am. Do you see that? And he did this three other times in chapter 3. Here I am. And now, at the end of his ministry, even though he's got some more time on the earth yet, officially he's going to end his role in a sense. And what does he say at the very end? Just like he said at the very beginning, here I am. Examine me. Look what, have I, do I owe anybody anything? In verse 4, back in our text, and they said, you've not cheated us or oppressed us. You haven't taken anything from any man's hand. And then he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed, speaking of Saul, is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, he is witness. God and Saul are witness, Samuel, that all your life, up to this moment in time, you've not cheated us. You don't owe us anything. And Samuel was so unlike the men that he grew up with. Hophni and Phinehas, so, so very different. He was a man of integrity, a great man of God. And this was Samuel's way of going out blameless, going out blameless before the people, clearing the way before Saul, clearing any accounts that might be open against him. I wonder how things would be if every CEO and every politician did that before they left office or before they left the business and somebody else took over. If there was a clearing of the accounts and a conscience coming forward and saying, does anybody have anything against me? Have I stolen anything? Is anybody aware of any problem before I leave this platform? You know, is there any problem? Can you imagine how much better the world would be if people did that? It's called a clear conscience. You know, sometimes at a wedding, I don't, they don't really do this so much anymore, but sometimes at weddings, the priest or the pastor will say, if there's anyone here who does not agree with this marriage, speak now or forever hold your peace. And then invariably, there's some guy in the background who had a date with the bride and he's felt, you know, disheveled and, you know, dissed. He stands up, no, they shouldn't be married. She's mine. 
And then Secret Service comes out and puts a little dot on his chest, you know. No. You know what I mean? There's accountability. Accountability and transparency is good. I want to hear that someday. When I finally check out, however that is, whether it's through death or when the Lord takes us in the rapture. Do you know he's coming soon, folks? Are you excited? Get excited because he's coming soon. He's coming soon. And when he does, I want to hear, just like it was spoken to um, in Jesus when he spoke to his disciples in Matthew 25, 21. What did he say? He says, well done, good and faithful servant. For you were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter the joy of your Lord. Don't you want to hear that? I want to hear that. And in a sense, that's what Samuel's doing. He's clearing the, clearing the accounts. And it's a good thing to do. And then in verse 6 through 11, we're going to see him rehearsing history for them, telling them the history from the time they came out of Egypt up till that moment in time, and briefly, all the good things that God has done for them, making them again accountable. Do you see what God did? Do you remember before you had a king? Before you had a king, you remember what God did? Do you remember what he did? Before you had a king, do you remember what God did? Let's start in verse 6. Then Samuel said to the people, It's the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did for you and your fathers. So when Jacob had gone into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord because of the oppression, of course, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place that you're at right now. And when they forgot the Lord, verse 9, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, Moab, and they fought against them. And then they cried to the Lord, and he said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, but now deliver us from the hand of our enemies, and we will serve you. Doesn't that sound like the roller coaster that we were just in when we were in the book of Judges? Just one after another, one after another, ups and downs, ups and downs. They, they fall into idolatry. God allows somebody to take them out, take them captive. Then they cry out, and then God raises up a savior, a deliverer, not a king. God raises them up, gives them, puts the spirit of God on the, upon them, empowers them to do something, not a king. And then verse 7, and the Lord sent Jerubbabel, who we know as Gideon, Bedan, who is uh, Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel. Samuel is the last judge. And it delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt in safety. Wow, and God did all that, didn't he? Without a king, without a big army, God directing all the way. So unlike all the other nations around them. You know, I don't want to be like everybody else, do you? I mean, do you really want to be like all the other nations? Do you want to be like everybody else? You know, one of the things I think is so interesting about the body of Christ is we have the greatest thing that unifies us, and that's the Lord himself. He unifies us in spite of our racial differences, in spite of our backgrounds, in spite of our anything. I mean, it's like Baskin-Robbins in here tonight. We got 55 varieties of everybody in here. We got people from Asia, we got people from Europe, we got people from, you name it, you know, I'm looking around the room and each of you have a story and we've all come from different places and yet we can love each other in here. We can really love each other and we have for years. I've known most of you for many, many years and here we are together, unified under one banner, 
under one banner, Jesus Christ. How powerful is that? The world can't even do that. Do you understand that? If this was a workforce, people would be fighting and gossiping and talking about each other, going out to drinks, and did you hear about so-and-so? I can't believe that she said that, and he did, he did what? Just bickering, fighting, scraping, hateful. But yet the church can gather like this. And notice in verse 12 in our text, it says, And when you saw, now Samuel, again, speaking to the Israel, he says, When you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but we will have a king over us when the Lord your God was your king. Did you notice the progression? I just, it hit me like a ton of bricks today. Notice the progression of what's happening up to this very moment in their history. God being their provider, their sustainer, their deliverer through the wilderness. No king, right? No king. And then all of a sudden, during the time of the judges, God raises up these individuals whom the Spirit of God comes upon to help deliver them from their problems, their enemies. And now, finally, they have a king. Do you see the progression? First, there's just the Lord. Now there's judges. Now there's a king. Do you see how that works? Slowly, slowly, the people's eyes are getting off the Lord and rather on a man. And it's always dangerous when we get our eyes on a man. And I say that right now because, you know, many people, and again, whether you're Republican or Democrat, we shouldn't be having our eyes on, and, and the Lord convicted me of this, we shouldn't have our eyes on Joe Biden or Donald Trump or anybody else. God is the one who's in control. He's the one we need to seek. And we need to do what we should do and pray for those who are in authority over us, right? Peaceably, live peaceably and do the right thing. Amen? But it went from a total dependence upon God to dependence upon man. Dependence upon man. You'll notice that, and you might just want to write down a few of these verses, just a couple of them. Uh, Deuteronomy 29 through 33. These are actual chapters. In the margin of your Bible, right next to verse 12, write in Deuteronomy 29 through 33. And also write in Joshua chapter 24. Now, what is the big deal about those chapters? Deuteronomy 29 through 33 is when Moses was finally giving his swan song like Samuel is doing tonight in this chapter. Moses telling the people, rehearsing for them all that God had done, how he brought them out of Egypt, all the things that he did in the desert. And finally he gets to the, the eastern side of the, of the uh, Jordan River and God wouldn't allow Moses to go over. We looked at that. And so he dies. And then Joshua takes over. But before he dies... Moses gives them this whole history and then warns them. He says, if you do these things, God will do this. But if you don't do these things, rest assured, you are in deep trouble. You are in deep trouble. Turn with me to Joshua. We'll just look at one of these. Uh, turn to the book of Joshua, and we'll look at the very last chapter, chapter 24. And let's see here. Um, and again, this won't take very long, but I just want you to see it. Um, I would encourage you to read the entire chapter, but basically Joshua is rehearsing again, and before he leads the children of Israel into the promised land, he is rehearsing for them all the history, all the things that God did, bringing them through the Red Sea, all the things that God did, the miracles. And then it says in verse 16, actually back up in verse 15, 
Finally, he says to the people, he says, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, now I want you to compare what, we've, what we're reading right now in Joshua to what we've just read in chapter 12. Similar thing happening, a rehearsing of history and then a warning. So he tells them in, back in Joshua 24, verse 15, And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose your, for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us up. Uh, and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord for he is our God. And that's after Joshua rehearsed for them all the great things. And they're basically saying, yeah, we agree with all that. And then it says in verse 19, but Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord. You can't serve the Lord, for he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. And then he gives them the conditional promise. Does this sound familiar to what we read about tonight in our chapter 12 tonight? He says, if, if you forsake, and here is the conditional promise. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then... He will, turn, on you. He will uh, turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. And so Joshua said to the people, notice, you are witness against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Isn't this what, isn't this what Samuel is doing before the people there? Making them witnesses? Saul, you're witness to this as well. Has anybody taking a bribe from my hand, here I am. Let's clear the accounts. Anybody got any problem with me, right? Joshua's doing the very same thing. He's rehearsing for them the great things of God and then telling them, you better be careful, folks. Better be careful. Notice what he goes on and he says, and they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law. And he took a large stone and he set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, here it is. Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. So Joshua let the people depart, each to his own inheritance. So he's warning them. And that's exactly what we see here. Let's go back into our text tonight in verse 13. So he says, now therefore, here is the king whom you've chosen and whom you have desired, and take note. And you know, even though God had picked Saul, the Lord knew the heart of the people. He knew exactly what they were looking for. They were looking for someone tall, dark, and handsome. Ladies, you're probably going, well, that sounds like a really good thing. <laughs> tall, dark, and handsome. Things haven't changed, by the way. The people were looking for a leader, and in their mind, they're thinking somebody tall and good-looking. Who cares if the guy can't speak? Just read the teleprompter and shut up. Right? <laughs> Tall and handsome. That's what Saul was. It was all about the outward appearance with them. 
It was a shallow desire. Again, be careful what you ask for. You might just get it. Notice what in Psalm 106, you might want to put this off to the margin of your Bible. Psalm 106, verse 12 through 15. Psalm 106, verse 12 through 15. Let me read it to you. It says, Then believed they his words, and they sang his praise. And he's speaking about Israel. David is rehearsing, the psalmist is rehearsing the history of Israel in the desert. But they soon forgot his works, and they waited not for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness, and tempted God in the desert. And notice, verse 15, here is the thing. And he gave them their request, but he sent leanness to their soul. Be careful what you ask for, you might just get it. He gave them their request, but sent leanness to their soul. Remember the quail? <laughs> We're tired of this manna. Just give us some meat, for heaven's sakes. And they kept complaining, 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 complaining. And God, you, you want meat? Okay. You're going <laughs> to, believe me, you're going to get meat. You're going to see meat, and it's going to come at you 100 miles an hour. And all the birds start sweeping in. They ate so much in their lust, they got sick. Some of them perished because of their lust. But this idea of leanness is scantness. It's a, it's a wasting. And then here in verse 14 and 15, we're going to see the exact same thing that Joseph did. I'm sorry, not Joseph, but Joshua did with the children of Israel. He gives them that conditional promise again. What does he say in verse 14 and 15? If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice, and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue to follow the Lord your God. Do you see that? Whenever you see an if-then statement, that's a conditional promise. You know that there are conditional promises, and there are promises that God makes that are unconditional. The unconditional ones are basically God saying, Abraham, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> and God does it. It's not dependent upon Abraham's performance. But when God says, if you do this, then I will do this, then there's some culpability on men. There's a responsibility for me to obey. So if I obey, then God does something. If I don't obey, he doesn't. Is prayer important? God can do anything, but he rarely does anything without his people praying. I wonder what would happen if we prayed more often and we got together like a, an ember of coals. Don't be like that little red ember that's taken from the fire and placed on the perimeter of the fire and just grows really black and it starts to glow pink and then it turns black and smolders. That's, that's who we are when we, when we stop fellowshipping, when we stop wanting to be together. I mean, obviously we can't be together 24-7, but we have several opportunities in a week to get together and we have several opportunities to pray before services, certainly on Tuesday nights, I'd encourage you to rethink it. And even in your personal life, be a person of prayer. It's something I need to do more often. My prayer life needs to increase. I'll be honest with you. And the Lord has been challenging me about that. But notice, fear the Lord, serve him, obey his voice, do not rebel against the commandments. Then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue to follow the Lord. Notice that it wasn't if you fear and serve and obey King Saul. It was if you fear the Lord and serve him and obey God's voice. See the difference? Even though he's your king, folks, you need to be following me. 
And if you do those things, then everything's going to be just fine. But if you get your eyes off of me and on your king, you're going to be in trouble really quickly. Notice in verse 15, however, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your father's. This is exactly what happened in the generation that perished in the wilderness because of their unbelief. Psalm 95 in verse 7 begins, it says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. And notice, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years, God says, I was grieved with that generation, and I said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It was because of unbelief. Unbelief. And we're all, we can all be guilty of unbelief. And ultimately, this verse, this verse 15, was fulfilled because they didn't They did not obey the voice of God. They did rebel against his commandment. And what's going to happen to them in the near or in the future? They're going to be taken captive. The northern ten tribes by Assyria and the southern two tribes by Babylon. They're all going to be taken captive. And also Saul himself. This is one of the things that Saul why God rejected him from being king, because he wasn't obedient. We're going to see in the very next chapter that God gave Samuel a very specific direction for Saul, and Saul would not listen. He acted in haste to take things into his own hands when he should have waited. And we're going to see later on when God says, I want you to wipe out the entire, the Amalekites, I want you to wipe them all out, men, women, children, their king, everybody, everything. Do you understand, Saul? Yes. And what does he do? He he doesn't wipe out. He takes all the fatted calves and the the sheep, and he keeps the king alive. And Samuel comes up and says, what's this, I hear bleeding of the sheep in the background. Where where, did that all come from, Saul? Oh, the people made me do it. That sound familiar in the garden? The serpent made me do it. Adam, the wife, made me do it. (laughs) The blame game. Saul had the same problem. It was because of his disobedience that God rejected him. Rejected him. In verse 16, back in our text, So now, therefore, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is not today the wheat harvest? I call, I will call to the Lord, and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and asking for a king for yourselves. It was very unusual at this time during the wheat harvest for it to rain, because this is around mid-May, mid-June area, and uh, it was a drier season. And so when when this uh, was happening, it was uh, a notable miracle to them, because it just doesn't happen that way in the Middle East. There, there are seasons for rainy seasons, and this wasn't one of them. And I thought to myself, how awkward this must have been. Because Saul is right there as Samuel's telling the nation about this, about their wickedness being great, which they've done in the sight of the Lord, and asking for a king. Can you imagine? I mean, put yourself, here's Saul standing there. He's head and shoulders above everybody else. And he's standing there, probably next to Samuel. And Samuel's telling everybody, you guys are wicked because you asked for this guy. If I was Saul, I'd be like, "Um, I'm going to leave. And when you're done with this speech... I won't come back. (laughs) Think of it. It's really awkward for him to be standing there hearing this, going, I don't think I want this job. 
It was a great exhortation for them because their tendency was for mischief. Even Moses, he says in Deuteronomy 31, verse 29, for I know before he died, he told the children of Israel, for I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt and you'll turn aside from the way which I have commanded you and evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. So he's making them accountable. Verse 18, it says, So Samuel called the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. They feared the Lord. It's very familiar to us when we consider what happened with Moses. When God told him to raise the rod of God over the Red Sea and they passed through, what, what, what happened on the other side? It tells us in Exodus 14, verse 31, or 31 says, Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, and the people feared the Lord, and they believed the Lord and his servant Moses. They believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Isn't that what it just said here? And the people feared greatly, and they feared the Lord and Samuel. Very similar thing happening. Verse 19, And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we might not die. And this is one of the great things that a priest does, he intercedes. That's what a priest does. He, 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 priest does. he intercedes for the people. Whether it's on the account of some kind of sacrifice or whether it's on the account of, of a prayer, offering it for the people. Interposing, if you will. And then Samuel said to the people, verse 20, do not fear. <laughs> I don't know why I love this verse. It's, it's very, I shouldn't love it. I mean, it's, it's just a... A weird thing about me, I guess. Samuel said to the people, Do not fear, you have done all this wickedness. <laughs> I think I'm going to fear because I have. You've done this wickedness, but notice the hope in it. Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. I mean, how much accountability can there be here? Before he finally hands off the baton to Saul, he's saying, you guys got to be careful. History has shown over and over again. We've got it right here in front of us. I read some of it to you in Deuteronomy and Joshua. Hearts really haven't changed that much. But we need to return to the Lord. We need to return to truth and integrity. We need to return to the Lord with all of our heart. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Calvary Chapel of Rochester. Hear, O Christians in America. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. O Lord, may it be true. May it be more true. I can't say that I've loved him with everything I've got. I can't say that I have, you know, with all my heart, all my strength, all my might. I would love to be able to stand before you and say that, oh, yeah, I've done that. I'm currently living that right now. I'd love to be able to say it, but I'd be lying if I did. That's the goal. Christ-likeness. Is it your goal, too? Don't get satisfied in your status quo. Being content is good. Godliness with contentment is great gain, but don't be too content with your, with your walk with the Lord. Always be reaching forward to that, with that, for that prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Don't be content in just being where you're at. Reach forward, folks. Reach for it. Don't just, whenever you feel yourself just kind of in a blasé kind of attitude, reach forward. Get into prayer. Get into, get into the Word and say, Lord, help me get out of this. It's deadly. It's deadly.
And notice in verse 21, and do not turn aside for when you, for, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. See, God is not trying to keep people from enjoying their life. He's not trying to keep you from having fun and enjoying life. Quite the opposite. The fun that I thought I was having before I came to Christ had a really hefty price tag on it, right? Isn't it true? The wages of sin is death. All my sin that I did, all the fun that I thought I was having, the price tag was really huge. And I've got to be honest with you, God was so gracious to me and to you because if I'd have gotten caught, if I'd have made a mistake when I was in that stupid, doing those stupid things, the price would have been great. And yet I did it over and over and over and over again. I almost wonder if my guardian angel was going, oh my gosh, I need time and a half. This guy is killing me. He just won't stop being a fool. And I can almost hear the Lord going, yeah, he is pretty foolish, isn't he? Yeah, he's acting like there's no God. Pretty foolish. But when we obey and follow the Lord, there is great peace and there's great blessing. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what everybody wants is really peace? Doesn't everybody want peace? And don't we want blessings? Isn't that what everybody wants? See, people are always trying to achieve it apart from the Lord, and they're looking for love and acceptance in what? All the wrong places. There's our problem. We stop looking at God, and we want to fulfill that apart from God. And whenever you do that, you will find heartache. You will find pain. You'll find regret. But when you find your fulfillment in Christ alone, we sing the song, in Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Different psalm, but same idea. For the Lord, back in our text, verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. I love that. In spite of the stiff kind of talk that he just gave them, he says in his mercy and grace, for the Lord will not forsake his people. Yes, you've sinned. You've made a big mistake. Yeah, you stepped in it really big. But guess what? You're still his people, and he adores you. He adores you. To me, that's like the joy after the punishment. I remember when I'd get spanked by my mom. She would come after me. She'd tell me to go in her closet and find the, find, just pick a belt. And so I'd pick the small one because I thought it would hurt less. I learned that it's really the real thin ones that hurt the most. So the next time I got that, you know, 1970 white belt that she wore, you know, that one that's about that thick. But not the first time. I learned a lesson. But after the spanking, after the, with the belt, she would hold me. And everything was restored. There was a peace, wasn't there? There was a peace that was restored. Grace and mercy. God says, his, For the Lord will not forsake his people, for his name is great, for his name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. He's not ashamed. He loves you. And folks, I want to tell you tonight that God loves you, regardless of what you're going through the things you're struggling with, no matter what it is. If you've got a habitual sin, something in your life that's been gnawing at you for years, and you think to yourself, I should be over this by now. After all, I've, learned, I've known the Lord for 10 years now. Why can't I kick this thing? Pray to God and kick it. Pray to God and kick it. Stifle it. Suffocate that thing, whatever it is. Ask him for help. Don't ever, ever, ever stop. In fact, repeat after me. Don't ever stop. Ready? Don't ever stop. 
In the Greek, the word ever means ever. Don't ever stop. Don't ever stop. Please, don't ever stop. Confess and come to the Lord and continue confessing and coming to the Lord and get the victory. Let Jesus give you the victory. He's already won it on the cross. Fight the good fight. Resist the flesh. The devil will flee from you, but it's not going to go away, but it'll be less hard the next time because you've given the Lord over into your life. Give him your heart. Notice what he says here. I think that we're coming upon the last couple of verses here. Thank you for bearing with me. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord and ceasing to pray for you. Wow, what a guy. It'd be sin for him to stop praying for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. I love this so much. In fact, uh, let's just look at one thing here. He says, um, let me see, verse, 20, uh, verse 23, he says, but I will teach you the good and the right way. I want you to write off in the margin of your Bible a verse. Jeremiah 6, verse 16. Jeremiah 6, verse 16, and here it is. Notice what he's saying to them. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Let me read Jeremiah to you, that verse. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths, where the good way is, and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Also, I set watchmen over you, saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. Therefore, hear, you nations, and know, O congregation, what is among them. Hear, O earth, behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people, the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not heeded my words, nor my law, but rather rejected it. So ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Believe me, there's nothing new under the sun. I would encourage you to be careful, folks, about YouTube and all these other things. There is so much junk on YouTube, spiritual junk, as well as all the other riffraff, but there's a lot of spiritual junk, too, and you got to be careful. I know this because recently I fell into a thing where I, and the Lord uh, got me out of it very quickly. It's very easy to get caught up in something. You have to be really careful. Be very careful. Please be careful. Don't just follow it because somebody says it's a good video they sent to you. You got you to gotta, you gotta listen to it based on what you know of the Word of God. There's so much trickery. There's so much nonsense out there. In fact, it would be better if you didn't want listen to it at all. And believe me, <laughs> over the last week, week and a half, I've learned a great lesson. A great lesson, and I won't forget it. It brought me to my knees literally in tears of how easy it was for me to be deceived by something. Just one little piece of information that seemed right and seemed so right on and it turned out to be completely false. And I wept like a child when I found out about it. I'm like, Lord, I am such a fool. Why did I listen to it? Be very careful, saints, seriously. You're better off not watching. You're better off not listening to news. You're better off reading your Bible. It's the only truth you got. Verse 24 in our text, Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, notice. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Oh my, there's the uh, 
the exhortation, the accountability once again. Will you heed the call? Let's not do wickedly like the children of Israel. Will you heed the call? I want to heed the call. Let's stand and pray, yeah? Know that the Lord loves you. He is so aware of everything. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's got everything under control. Everything may appear crazy to us. He's a good Lord. He's a good God. He is not taken by surprise by anything that's happening in your life. He's not taken by surprise anything. I'm learning to trust him more. How about you? Father, we just come before you with, with hearts that are hungry. Lord, we come before you with hearts that are eager to know your truth even more, to know you more, Lord, to know your word more, to, to be able to appropriate these things into our lives that we could be ambassadors, that we could be good witnesses, Father, for you, that one day we will stand before you and you will say to us, and I hope this is true for every single one of us, that we'll be able to stand before you, Lord, and you will say, well done, you were struggling and you fought and you kicked <laughs> and you kept going. You got up when you fell and your nose was bloody and your knees were scraped. You got back up and you ran and you ran toward me and I've forgiven you and here you are. I will give you great, great victory and great joy over the things that you've done. Enter into the joy of your Lord. You've been faithful with a little. I'm going to give you a lot. Lord, may that be true of each of us. In Jesus' name, amen.